Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss how the transition back to normality has influenced fund managers and changed where they invest their clients' funds. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. And for many of us, uh, especially those that are still perhaps working from home like myself, it's got a little bit quieter. So hopefully that means less background noise on these podcasts. But today I'm joined by Will, our resident CIO, and Mike, our funds specialist. Mike, Will, how are you doing? And what's your household like this week? Well, I've just been complaining to Nikki offline. I'm going to, t- I'm going to tell the audience that the miniature Dashend seems to be behaving pretty badly. The youngest just did a number two on my armchair, my only armchair. <laughs> uh, it didn't. Also, as I was saying, like it didn't feel random. Like it feels like some reprisal for some imagined slight. So yeah, I'm <laughs> trying to get over that a little bit, but obviously. It's well, random. given I get a lot of messages from colleagues and listeners that walk their dog while listening to this podcast, including myself when I'm not hosting. I, I suspect there's a wry smile as they... As Sympathetic they listeners, hopefully, yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And, and Mike, what about the Haslam household? How are things looking this week? Haslam household is a lot quieter. My daughter's gone back to school. My son's getting ready for university. You know, it, it's, oh, it's good. Yeah, my, my eldest is off to uni this weekend. So I, I suspect we'll either be whooping for joy or bereft. And <laughs> Let's get on to the topic in hand. So, Will, can you just give us a bit of a market update? Because I think whilst... Things look, you know, around the place. Life is starting to feel a bit more normal in the sense that more people are going back into offices. I think cities are getting busier. What what are you seeing with respect to the data around COVID infections and and you know what that's sort of telling us for the for the economy and markets? Well, yeah, I mean, markets have been considerably better behaved behave than my wife's dogs, which is a nice <laughs> thing. And the world's, you know, investors obviously have considerably larger matters on their collective uh, armchair. But what we seem to be seeing at the moment, judging by kind of reasonably sedate price action for the last few weeks, and for, you know, much of the summer, to be honest, is more kind of fine tuning and tweaking of expectations rather than anything more j- jarring. There are, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, the, the point that most people are looking at is that because of policy action from central bankers and governments around the world, you know, this recovery compared to, you know, let's say the recovery from the last recession has been genuinely V-shaped. You know, we're in a lot better stage state than we were sort of this time round in the last cycle. And there are, you know, if you want to look for signs of shorter term encouragement, there are some signs that the Delta wave is in the peak of, in the process of peaking globally. I, we obviously don't want to emphasize that too much. You know, we don't want to say that with too much conviction. But, you know, you are seeing the reinfection rate go below one in 90% of US states now. Global cases have been falling for the last couple of weeks. If you want a flip side, though, you know, we can also point out that the Delta strain has already exacted a larger economic toll than forecasters expected. We've seen that from, you know, incoming data from the US, UK and Asia in particular. So various asset markets have been kind of digesting these near term downgrades. I'll leave the other big news that, you know, the, the, the cabinet reshuffle to Olivia, lest I get myself into trouble. But yeah, that's broadly the sort of the tone of things. Let's let's keep things safe. Mike, <laughs> Mike, what about you? Uh, I know you speak to our fund managers pretty much day in, day out. So so what are their thoughts? Yeah, you, you know what? It's really interesting, this whole, you know, you know, potentially returning to some some kind of normality in our in our personal lives, work lives and and even looking at the market. So so really the sort of things I'm hearing from fund managers 
seem to be reverting back to some of the messages and themes that I was hearing pre-pandemic. So, so, so what have we had? We've had companies that have done well during the lockdown. We've had companies that haven't done well. We've talked about these quite a lot in the podcast over the last few months, how fund managers have been, you know, kind of played these stories, but, but they're now kind of moving on a bit. Also as well, I'm hearing less and less about the whole growth versus value story. It's really more about having a balance of each, which is the way that we play it with our client portfolios. And fund managers are simply focusing on companies that could potentially do well as global economies continue to rebound and to grow once again. So they're looking for innovative companies that are simply disrupting markets and basically hunting for cheaply valued shares, to be oh, honest. Yeah, it almost sounds like the good old days, Mike. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But but within here, there, there are some topics which come up more than others. And I thought today I'd share some of these with you. So the first one is inflation. Uh, we've had a couple of spikes. Well, even this week, uh, UK inflation has spiked up uh, numbers out this week. And much has been written on whether we are now maybe entering a period of higher inflation or whether this is just a one-off. And whenever there's something to talk about, it always seems that there's room for people to panic, you know, asking questions about what should I be you know, investing in now? Should I, be making, should I be making changes to my investment portfolios? I guess we do well as well. It's a, um, it's a pretty hot topic. Yeah, Mike, I mean, inflation, I mean, we've done a few things on this, as you know, and it's very much the topic of the moment. You know, and after, you know, if you think about it, talking about we just referred to the last cycle, well, the preoccupation with the last cycle was really everyone worrying about deflation, disinflation. You know, now we're worrying about whether we're going to see a, you know, change in the guard, so to speak, from a long period of disinflation. And, and certainly incoming data, as you rightly point out, are doing little to assuage concerns on this front. But I think the UK is actually a good example of kind of where the headline data grabbed a lot of airtime. But actually, if you dig a little bit underneath a sort of closer investigation, uh, it shows that actually this data, these data points aren't actually moving the debate much, you know, very far along. So if you look at it, you know, restaurants and hotels um, accounted for just less than half of the change in the annual inflation inflation rate from the previous month, for example. Now, a good deal of that can be attributed to the fact that this time last year, restaurant prices were temporarily you know, very much depressed uh, by the eat out to help help out scheme, uh, you know, so so called base effect and and really a hint at just how noisy these data points are at the moment. Uh, And what really matters for central banks, as you know, you both know, and the rest of us is the post crisis trend in inflation, whatever that may be. And the fact that the crisis is far from post just yet, unfortunately. And in the UK, you know, we still have around 5% of the workforce on furlough, so around a million workers. And that's just one of the distortions that's really obscuring our view of that post-crisis trend. I guess one thing to watch would be if we see potentially persistently higher inflation reads in the next you know, three to six months. The question could be, do central banks around the world start to lose their nerve a little uh, and go a little earlier with rate rises than previously planned? That's not our central case, but, but you know, that, that would be massive for markets. But I think, you know, the point of all my ramblings as usual on this subject is humility remains appropriate. Yeah. And I guess there is a feel that, you know, sometimes when, when there are headlines that, you know, that there is a feel that you just need to panic and do something. But I've heard, I've, I've heard from you, Will, you know, the, the phrase, don't do something, just sit there. You know, it's, it's, and it's the same with our, with our, with our fund managers. You know, they don't take big bets on the market on the, on the back of their random guess where inflation is going. Is it going up, down, sideways, et cetera? So they invest in companies. They simply look for cheap companies who are growing their earnings. That's it. But when it comes to inflation, they do have to be careful. 
because if the cost of raw materials goes up and they can't pass that inflation on to customers, then that hits their profit margins. Yeah, and it's all over the news, right? Whether it's on the radio, on the television, company representatives being interviewed talking about their input costs going up, their staff costs, etc. So I guess if, if, you know, if we do see both raw material prices going up and, and indeed their, their other direct costs, some companies, though, can pass that on and, and some can't. So what's the impact of that, Mike? Yep, absolutely. So, so usually, typically, it's the big companies with the big global strong brands that can usually pass price increases on. So I think of companies like Nestle, you know, big global strong brands. Let's imagine that the uh, price of cocoa beans goes up. They then have to increase the price of a Kit Kat, which they probably could do at the end of the day. I would probably pay an extra penny or two for my Kit Kat because it's a powerfully strong brand. And it's the same with the company, um, UK company Unilever. So Unilever is a company with a portfolio of, again, strong global brands. And if, let's say, the price of milk goes up, then the price of Ben and Jerry ice cream, unfortunately, will probably go up. Unilever could probably push that price increase on so that you and I will be paying more for in the shops. There seems to be a bit of a trend of, of the goods and <laughs> that you're picking on, Mike. Is, is this, are we going to have a surprise when we see you back in the office in, in a month or two? <laughs> How are gym companies doing? No, I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> they are for me, by the way. It's going to be a link to myself, whether it's COVID restrictions or not. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, so Mike, any other... Well, I mean, either feel free to stay on your theme of, of um, delicious, delicious food. <laughs> Any other ideas here? Well, you know what? This has happened before. So let's go back five years. Have a look at a case study. Marmite. OK, so 2016. So Marmite is manufactured by Unilever. And parent company Unilever said it would have to increase the price of Marmite by about 10 percent on the back of an increase in the price of raw materials. What with the value of the pound having fallen post Brexit. However, the supermarket said no. They were telling Unilever that they would have to swallow the cost themselves. The supermarkets were not prepared to increase the price of Marmite on the shelf. I don't know if you remember that five years ago, Marmite. Yeah, I, Marmite I jolly well do, because in my household, Marmite belongs with peanut butter and uh, oh. it's, a, it's a necessity, not a luxury. <laughs> what, did you mix the two? Cool. No, no, no. You oh, don't God, mix. You, you layer. <laughs> you layer. Uh, you layer. Marmite. Well, they brought out butter. they brought out the product which mixed it, and I thought that was genius until I tried it, and it's a different sensation. Oh, it's got to be sinister. layered. No, no you, 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 you open your mind. I really, I don't really need to. I love Marmite on its own, but yes, gosh, that's amazing. Okay, I never knew it existed. Sorry to interrupt. Marmageddon being played out here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. It's like so, you're not in the same room. <laughs> so this really was a battle, okay? Now, now, because of this dispute, it meant that it was really difficult to get hold of other Unilever goods in the supermarket. So again, you know, Ben & Jerry's, Hellman's mayonnaise, etc. Now, eventually, this price increase did not go through. It became a great bit of PR victory for the supermarket in terms of them protecting their shoppers from you know, large, large price increases. So why is this important, though? Because as a shareholder, Unilever took that hit, which means their profit margins were hit. The supermarket came out unscathed. So let's imagine that Marmite was the only product that Unilever made. And it's, if Marmite was the only product that the supermarket sell, then the savvy investor would have bought shares in supermarkets and not bought Unilever. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, so the active fund managers 
that you're talking to, you know, they're, they're spending their time really trying to understand what are the, the dynamics here. The companies that they're interested in are the ones, presumably, that they think can push through price increases and, and protect their margins. Absolutely. Now, fast forward to today. So here's another example that is playing out at the moment. And I'm afraid it's something that affects all of us. And I'm talking coffee here. Now, so far this year, the price of coffee beans are up about 40, 45%. Now, there's a number of combinations behind this. Three main ones. Number one, weather in Brazil. So there's been an unusual frost in Brazil, which is the world's largest coffee producer. And the coffee crop is down about 20% from last year. Number two, political turmoil in Colombia, the third largest producer. Uh, bean output is something is down something like 40, 50% year on year. And number three, we've heard about all sorts of supply bottlenecks, you know, tr- you know logistics, trans- transportation issues, um, labour shortages as well. So that has slowed delivery times as well. So what does this mean then for the price of coffee on the high street? Well, many independent coffee shops uh, will plan to pass on the cost to consumers by raising prices. Meanwhile, some of the bigger companies, so think Starbucks, Nestle, who buy their beans so far in advance, they don't have to worry about price increases for at least another year. So the question comes, what will Nestle and Starbucks and all the other big, big coffee sellers do? Well, when the price of raw materials goes up, there are three ways that companies can deal with it. The first one is simple inflation. They hike prices. They pass it on to you and I. Okay, that's the easy one. Number two, they shrink the size of products. Now, you both know, whether it's an urban myth or not, wagon wheels have gotten smaller. There are less monster munch in the pack. I'm sure, I'm sure you know this, this story. So this is known as shrinkflation. You simply shrink the product size and charge the same price. Or the third one is where you swap the ingredients for cheaper ones. So this is called swapflation. So for coffee, swapflation would involve swapping out the popular Arabica beans for cheaper but less premium Robusta beans. So swapflation is definitely a new one on me. From what you're saying, and, and I'm trying not to panic, especially as you're talking about coffee, I, I can pass on the wagon wheels and the Kit Kat and the, and the Ben and Jerry's, but, but coffee really would hit me where it hurts in this household. It sounds like that could be getting more expensive, portion sizes getting smaller or lower quality maybe doesn't taste so good. So it doesn't sound like a great outlook as far as I'm as far as I'm hearing, potentially. So what, what does that mean? What are our fund managers that are selecting companies? What are they doing about it? Okay, so they need to work out who will be the winners and losers. So like in the previous battles with the supermarkets, will the likes of Starbucks and Nestle be able to pass on a full price of, you know, increase for a jar of coffee for the likes of Nestle, or will they have to take a hit to their margins? Now, there are some industries as well where you simply have to pass on a price increase. So think about petrol, good example. If the price of oil goes up, you can't, you know, you can't sell a slightly smaller litre of petrol or you can't water it down with inferior ingredients. So simply the price of petrol goes up. So the conclusion here is that when it, when it comes to inflation, don't worry about where to invest or how to invest or when that inflation will come or if it won't come. Just don't worry about how it'll look. Leave it up to our active managers to understand the companies they invest in and how those companies will be dealing with inflation. Yeah, it's a pretty familiar point, isn't it? I, I obviously agree with this. <laughs> this is a point we harp on a lot, you and I, on this thing. But it, it's a self-serving point. But I think that the, the, the core recommendation from this is that there should, if possible, be a large proportion of your assets where you leave it to the professionals, as you say. Now, obviously, full-time investment people, basically. And, and in this case, it's us, I mean, or, or one of our sort of similar competitors, from 
asset allocation to the funds that we and others painstakingly select to allow, uh, you know, to follow those allocations. That, that doesn't mean, I think, just to sort of to try and introduce a little bit of fun into it, but it doesn't mean you can't have fun with investments. You can own single stocks, pick your own funds, even try your hand at the crypto casino, but it just should be proportional to that core engine. Because in our opinion, um, and I know you, you both agree with this, but building up your savings for whatever your goals, near term or, you know, not near term or far, it's serious work. And markets do not give up returns easily. It's a full-time job require, requiring this kind of bringing together of various teams of very concentrated specialists. And on your Marmite point, your sort of uh, stylistic example, the point is that it, the market doesn't wait for the story to hit the papers before it acts. These investors are trying to get behind the scenes and get ahead of the guy. It's, it's an arms race, nonstop. And I think, you know, that's, that's why fund managers are a very important part of our value chain. And, and, you know, they set the threshold of what you have to know to be serious about being active in markets. And that bar is not low. I mean, the point I would use, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, if I wanted a car, I don't want to build it. I certainly wouldn't put my family in any attempt I made to build it, but I'm happy to garnish it with some fluffy dice and some, some other stuff alongside without being, uh, without going too far. I think that's without the, it. without the dashend in the front seat. Well, yeah, they get left behind <laughs> if, I had a cho- if I had a choice and I don't. So obviously. Yeah. And, and especially when it comes to Inflation, it's obviously got everyone's attention. Um, there's a lot being written at the moment. It's what economists are talking about. There's, as I mentioned, you know, talking heads on the radio, on the TV. So it's good to hear that our active fund managers are, are, are almost ahead of the curve, right, are, are taking action um, based on, on what they anticipate. So anything else other than this that's, that's grabbed your attention recently, Mike? Um, I'll tell you what, I've been pretty impressed with the last few podcasts where you've been focusing on innovation. It all fits in with your kind of view on human innovation, Will. Yeah, do you know what, like, Mike, I've been thinking about this a lot because obviously I've been prattling on about innovation for years and years. And actually, the guys have managed to make it much more interesting and much fresher recently, the likes of Miles and co, uh, really approaching it, and I think in a much more accessible way. So I've really been enjoying that as well. And I think just to go back to my boring strand on this, the simplest point here I really like is is the thoughts of a favourite economist of mine, Julian Simon, combined with the man with the finest roof since Eric LaSalle in Coming to America, Stephen Pinker. You'll know, Google, honestly, you will see it. The, the most amazing, shiny ringlets. And it, obviously, jealousy, of course, <laughs> motivating it. But Pinker has observed that genius is evenly distributed, obviously. It doesn't cluster in the already rich or within a particular country, colour or creed. So in the bottom billion people in terms of income distribution, there should be a million people of genius level IQ. Now, Julian Simon made a related point in the 1970s when various you know, writers and commentators were worrying about overpopulation. They still are, obviously, but they were they were pointing exactly, you know, very definitively to starvation and all sorts of things that would that would accompany that that population growth. Now, Gillian Simon's simple observation was that the more of us there are, the better life seems to get. Uh, we are by nature born to innovate and improve our surroundings. Not all of us equally, but you know, most of us. Now, you know, from the Enlightenment and the industrial, you know, the industrial revolution, they they kind of helped us to light the touch paper on this thing and actually realize our potential to a certain extent and translate that into repeatable growth. But if you put this together with the fact that around a billion people are joining the middle class every seven to eight years in Asia now, a trend that yeah, COVID has interrupted, but I don't think it's it, it stopped that trend. And you put that, you know, that's 
a billion more people getting higher educational opportunities, more access to technology. And if you think about just the example of smartphones, you know, that puts the means of production uh, into many more people's hands. I find it very, very, very hard, as you probably know, both of you, to get too pessimistic about the future of innovation or productivity in the context of that fact, those facts put together. Yeah, fascinating stuff. It really is. It's, it's you know, kind of kind of looking at the wider the wider theme here. So coming coming back to the podcast that you've been um, the last the last few weeks. So we've had one covering technology, so innovation in technology, one covering innovation in healthcare, and one covering innovation in sustainable investing. Now I'm hearing a lot of this theme from fund managers, innovation. And it's all about looking for those companies that are primed to disrupt markets. And it's not just in the technology space. That's really important. It's not another food delivery app. Blimey, save me. No more food delivery apps, please. A lot, <laughs> in fact, a lot of them aren't even about apps or mobile phones or the internet at all. So let me give you an example here. So here's an interesting company. It's a US company called Avery Dennis. One part of what they do is a focus on plastic recycling. So just a little bit about plastic recycling, a bit of background. So PET is a type of plastic. Its full name is polyethylene terephthalate. Now, I'm going to call it PET. PET can be recycled. It is the most eco-friendly plastic because it can be wholly recycled. And it's used mainly for bottled waters and drinks because it's clear and it doesn't leave any taste in the drinks. However, the problem with recycling PET plastic is the label. Now, if the label on the bottle is made of a different plastic, the bottle cannot be recycled or it's more difficult to recycle it. And even if the glue used to stick the label on. If it's not the right glue, it could make it impossible to recycle the bottle. So one of the products that Avery Dennison make is a range of labels that make it possible to recycle and a water-based glue to come over this whole problem with the glue. It's a really simple solution, it's innovative, and it doesn't include an app, a mobile phone, or food delivery. And it's in the area of, of sustainability. And that's just an example of the sort of thing within innovation that's within our sustainable investing funds. Hearing that kind of example, it, it sounds so obvious, but you know, you might not, I don't think, I certainly wouldn't look at a plastic bottle, which obviously we're all trying to avoid wherever we can, but think that's a really innovative product, but but you've brought that to life. Yeah, and and it's not just within sustainability. So another area is healthcare. So when I again when I think of technology, I think of you know innovation, I think technology, but within healthcare. So here's so here's another one. So when you think about healthcare innovation, you're, you automatically think it's all about new wonder drug, but new wonder drugs are rare. In fact, the new Alzheimer's drug, which was announced back in July this year, that is the first such new drug in this space for 18 years. So innovation in healthcare is about a lot more than that. So an example is 3D printed devices. So this is a good one. So you plug in a 3D printer and you can print medical devices out anywhere in the world. If you have a shortage of ventilators, plug it in, print them out. You can print prosthetic limbs. And that technology has moved on to something called bioprinting. So this is where you're printing living tissue. So for the last 20 years, scientists have been bioprinting simple organs like bladders. Okay, And that technology has now moved on to printing liver tissues. So imagine being able to produce organs such as livers. It's just groundbreaking. Another one here, um, another company in healthcare, something called point of care technology. So this is where portable machines are able to conduct blood tests and get the results straight away. These machines have been huge. Historically, it's about you going to the hospital, waiting days or weeks for the blood sample to be sent off to the lab, and then you receive a letter in the post. Today, we're at the point where these machines are so small, 
They can be taken into your house and they can give you a result right there and right now. And that's innovation. And it's interesting healthcare because it, it's an example of an industry that's just crying out to be disrupted. Think about it. We now shop online. We watch TV and films online. We book holidays online. We talk to each other online. We even work online as we're doing now. Yet when it comes to medical help, we still phone the doctor's surgery in the morning. We make an appointment. We go and queue. Then we wait three weeks for the test results in the post. It simply hasn't changed for 50 years. It's crying out for innovation. And believe me, innovation is coming. Well, listen, listening to you both speak, it's, it's given me a renewed sense of optimism. So, so for that, I thank you, but, but also <laughs> for, for, for contributing today. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Hope, hope you've enjoyed this and we'll be with you again in a week's time. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. 